Amen. Our scripture reading for our sermon this morning is from Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. It reads this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of God. Amen. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you all again. Um, if you're new, uh, welcome to Risen. Welcome to our church. This is our third week outside. And so thank you for making it out, worshiping with us, um, bringing your own gear, and, uh, you know, making the best out of this pandemic. You know, right now we're continuing our sermon series through um, our 2021 vision, which is Cultivate. And uh, we're almost at the end of it, just a couple more weeks left. Uh, but today we're going to see what the Bible tells us about cultivating our calling. And we're going to take a look at our text from three angles. First, we're going to take a look at the context of our calling. <clears throat> Second, we're going to take a look at a balanced calling. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the freedom of our calling. So those are our three points. Um, let's talk about the context. You know, when we think about the idea of calling, you know, if you were to Google, Google what's my calling or what is calling or YouTube that, uh, many of us might think of it along the lines of Steve Jobs. Right? Steve Jobs defined calling as great work. And great work is something you truly love doing. In Walter Isaacson's biography on Jobs, Jobs says, The only way to be truly satisfied in life is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to know and to do great work is to do what you love. If you haven't found it, keep looking, don't settle, end quote. And you know, this is sort of the spirit that has swept up the generation. Jobs is uh, challenges, challenging this notion of purely working for financial security or comfort and instead pursuing what you love, what you're passionate about. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't completely disagree with this sentiment, um, I think there, there needs to be a lot more nuance, though. You know, just for the sake of discussion, let's say very crudely that there are two kinds of people, right? There are people like Jobs who believe that they should love their job. They're looking for deep purpose and deep fulfillment and deep commitment and contentment in their work. Much of their identity is wrapped up in their work. Um, it affects them so tremendously. It carries into the rest of their day uh, emotionally and physically and, and spiritually. In a sense, um, they live to work. Then, you know, there are others who work to live. What does this mean? Well, working to live uh, means that you can't wait to clock out. Uh, you can't wait to see your friends. Work is a hindrance to real life enjoyment and blessings. You know, you don't get excited uh, for the new challenges at work, you, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you leave that for the other guy. Um, and so in this view, work is to be avoided or simply endured. And the motivation to work is to simply bring home a paycheck. 
uh, to find contentment and fulfillment in other things. Now, not everyone is simply one or the other, you know, to more or lesser degrees. Uh, we're all a mixed bag of both. But there is this tension in all of us. How much of our work is to fulfill our calling and contentment in life? How much of our family and relationships is to fulfill our calling and contentment in life? Are these the only callings in life? What about our hobbies? What about church? What about service in the city, in the community? And so there is this tension in all of us, and, and you know, this, this, this uh, comes up in our conversations and community groups and, hey, how are you doing? It, we're essentially talking about this tension. And it's pulling us in so many different directions. It's in our culture. And, you know, as Christians, we have to be aware of that at least. Right? That this is the dominant culture of the world. Trying to define your calling for you. And depending on what magazine you read, what channel you watch, what YouTube video you watch, what Instagram person you follow, they're going to pitch their calling to you. But the tension and the context is that we're not content, we're not fulfilled. And nobody has seemed to crack this nut. So friends, this is the context. And I believe our text today really provides great insight, but not just insight, but power into this context. So this brings us to our second point, balanced calling. You know, first in our text, Jesus teaches his disciples, and he teaches us to pray and to ask for help to not fulfill just one of the callings in our life, but all of our callings. Right, if you look at your um, sheet and you look at the text, verse 9 and 10 addresses the Christian's calling as people who desire to see God's kingdom flourish, to see his grace and forgiveness changing and transforming the world in our heart and in our lives. Verse 11 addresses our calling of work, to pray about our work, to think about our work. This is part of how God provides for us and others. Verse 12 of our text addresses our calling in regard to our relationships. It asks God to forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Verse 13 gets to our calling in regard to our spiritual character. It asks God to lead us not in temptation, but to deliver us from evil. So you see, the Lord's Prayer encapsulates God's holistic call and purpose for us in order to live fulfilling lives, which is not possible if we were to miss any particular part of it. And so if we want to find true fulfillment in our lives, uh, what Jesus is telling us is we have to live out a comprehensive calling that encompasses a life of faithful work, but just not faithful work, forgiving and gracious relationships, growth in our spiritual character, and kingdom permanence. Uh, but today, I just want to focus on verse 11. Uh, there are so many things that we could, you know, we could turn this Lord's Prayer into an entire series itself, but today we're just going to focus on verse 11 of the prayer, spend some time unpacking it, right? Verse 11, ask God, give us this day, our daily bread. And there's so much in just that one little sentence. Give us this day our daily bread. 
First, Jesus is affirming our work, the goodness of it, God's will for it in our lives. So we ought to think about our work. We ought to pray about our work. But implanted in this sentence is the balancing of work. One, we're not to pray for more than what we need. We're not to pray for the lotto ticket. You know what I'm saying? Two, it's just one prayer request among four. So we're not allowed, we're not to let it consume our thoughts. All our prayer requests, our life, it's just one aspect of our calling. And three, what we'll see later, that work, though important and valuable, is not our highest calling in life. So then what this means is, you know, as we sort of unpack verse 11, work and what work provides, uh, though important and extremely valuable, must be seen in its proper place in the Lord's Prayer. We cannot expect work in the office or at home, any kind of job. Yes, even if we're doing the exact kind of work we love doing, we cannot expect it to give us a kind of uh, undisturbed, unfrustrated, ultimate and complete fulfillment in life. Why is that, though? Well, the Bible in Genesis talks about how ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, they incurred consequences of their rebellion. And we as their offspring inherit these consequences and brokenness of their sin. It's uh, the same thing as children inherit the qualities and consequences for good or bad from their parents. We in that same way, we inherit the qualities and consequences for good or bad from our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, after the Adam and Eve went against God, God tells them, Because you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return you know Genesis 3 is this ancient text everyone knows the story but it couldn't be more relevant and practical for us today right it gets straight to our context it gets straight to the, the tension in our lives that we experience with our work the frustration we experience in our workplaces, with co-workers, uh, with the ineffectiveness of what we put in and what we get out. Genesis 3 says, Do you find your work in life excruciatingly hard? This is why. So we see, if we were to take the Lord's Prayer and we were to take Genesis 3 together, work is not itself a curse. We were created for work. And it's a good thing. So many amazing blessings have come out of good and creative and honest and hard work. But at the end of the day, no matter how good or how much we love our work, any kind of work has been affected by the brokenness and consequences of sin. And Genesis 3 tells us that three things happen to the very fabric of our work. Pains, Pain, 
thorns and exhaustion, right? Pain, thorns, and exhaustion. We're just going to take a brief look at these three things. Pain. Work can bring blessings. Blessings like provision, blessings like service and benefit to others in life. These are the blessings that work can bring. But Genesis 3 tells us that work can also bring pain. For example, we can experience dishonesty, bullying, or betrayal by an employee or company that we've sacrificed so much for. And this is painful. We can let go by factors that are outside of our control. Sometimes some things just don't work out. But more seriously, sometimes because of our limitations, medical diagnoses can be wrong. Cars can have malfunctioning parts. Criminals can be acquitted and the innocent condemned. This is the painful brokenness and consequences of sin in the workplace. Second work has thorns. And if you've ever gone hiking or if you've ever gardened, I'm sure you have encountered thorns. Um, a thorn maybe got inside your shoe or maybe a thorn got inside your glove. And, and they don't bring the kind of intense pain that I just described. Instead, they bring frustration. Uh, they're just annoying. <laughs> um, no one is dying. There is no legal injustice. You can still accomplish the task, but the joy wears over time. And so maybe you work with someone who is extremely difficult to work with or a dysfunctional team or you're having extreme uh, disagreements um, or everyone is just having disagreements. It's causing you stress and frustration and even anger. This is called relative suffering. God is still providing. Things are still getting done. And you say, everything is great besides this part of my work. Friends, you're just experiencing the unavoidable reality of the thorns of work. You see, there will always be thorns. You can never eliminate all the thorns in your work or in your life. Genesis tells us why. The fall is real. Sin is real. You know, Francis Schaeffer, I mentioned him, I think it was last Sunday. Um, he's the one that created Labri, which is the community, um, the shelter. And he said, we all live in the shadow of the fall. We all live in the shadow of the fall, in our workplace and in our lives. And so we will always experience thorns, even if we're exactly at the right job, even if we love our job, and it's not just work. We'll experience thorns in our life no matter what stage of life we're in. Third, let's take a look at exhaustion. Let me share a personal example. You know, every time I preach, I spend about 20 to 25 hours um, sermon prepping, reading, and writing, and all that stuff. That's 25 hours for a 35-minute sermon. And sometimes I actually have more material cut out uh, than in the actual sermon itself. You know, I wish I could spend about five to ten hours 
for a 35-minute sermon. I wish that I didn't have to cut anything out, that whatever that came to my mind, that boom, that was perfect. But I know that's a fool's dream. That's just not how it works. Sermon writing is full of uh, mental blocks. Sometimes I sit there thinking about what to write, and like an hour goes by and I haven't written anything. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? Sometimes I think I'm going to go for a walk and an idea is going to come to me and I go for a walk and nothing comes to me. Sermon writing is a lot of research and editing and rewriting and practicing and prayer. That's just the way it works. It's tiring on top of all the things, of course, a pastor has to do. And, you know, I tell this to every young pastor getting into this life. No matter how much you love this, no matter how much you believe you call, you're called to this by God, you have to be ready to accept the exhaustion of work. And I know that all of you can relate to the exhaustion of work, whether it's at home or in, in the office. Many of you spend long hours at the computer. Your day is filled with meetings. The house is a mess. There's laundry to do. Kids to feed and wash. It's hard to be mentally and spiritually there for your family. You feel under the gun. You don't ever feel like anyone ever has the time to do anything more. And you love your kids. You would do anything for them. But it's exhausting. Sometimes, let's be honest, you just want to disappear. <laughs> Not forever. Just for like a couple hours. <laughs> Maybe a couple days. So on the one hand, the Lord's Prayer teaches us that work, whether it's in the office or out in the world, or in the home, is always to be a part of our calling in life. On the other hand, Genesis 3 and the Lord's Prayer t teaches us that because of the brokenness of work due to the curse, due to the fall of and the sin and, and the and sin, the unavoidable consequences, the pain and the thorns and the exhaustion, because of that, we cannot find our soul meaning, our soul calling, our soul fulfillment, even our highest calling in our work. Or we will always find ourselves frustrated exhausted and discontent. This brings us to our last point, the freedom of our calling. So to recap, only one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer is related to our work. The rest are related to our character and personal growth, our relationships, and the spiritual work of Christ. This is the balanced calling that uh, God has imprinted into the very creation of our hearts. This is how a well-balanced, fulfilling calling is cultivated. But this isn't easy to proportionally weigh, you know, all the different callings in our hearts in proper balance. It seems like it's a task that needs to be balanced every single day. But I think the fact that the first petition in the Lord's Prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done is telling. Because if we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, 
Your will be done. What are we saying? We're saying, Jesus, you are the king of my life. And for Jesus to be the king in your life, it means unless he's the most in what you love, in what you worship, in what you value, in what you cherish, if he is not the ruler of rulers in your heart, then something else will always rule over you. You'll be consumed by that ruler, by that one aspect of your life, by one of these petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And if we give it that value and if we give it that power as the ultimate calling and contentment in our life, it will rule us. But anything but Christ is a harsh ruler, so it will cause disorder, discontentment, and disintegration into our lives. If it's work, we'll neglect our spiritual heart, our spiritual compass and love and compassion in our relationships. And and also, if there's any hiccup at work, it will cause unproportional despair, unproportional anger, unproportional disruption in our hearts. Because it's not just one of our callings that has been shaken. No, the core of your calling has been shaken. Your ultimate calling is being shaken. If relationships and acceptance from others has an unproportional place in our hearts, then we may lack the spiritual character and courage to speak up. We may lack the spiritual compass to discern and navigate through the differing opinions and convictions and values. You know, if acceptance from others has this um, unproportional place in your heart, I find it myself, you know, I, I can be a people pleaser at times. When that happens in my life, any kind of conflict that I face Um, any kind of confrontation or disagreement, for me, it becomes unproportionately anxious for me. And so it's hard for me to kind of overlook and, you know, show grace and patience and find uh, commonalities, all the other different commonalities and laugh and share a meal. Um, It's hard for me to have an honest and direct yet humble and gracious conversation. But friends, By our faith in Jesus, what happens is Christ enters into our sort of unproportional and disheveled hearts. And what he does is he restores the order, the proper balance of these callings in our our hearts. And with him, rightfully as the king. But the only way to do this, Jesus cosmically has to deal with the power of sin that constantly distorts the callings in our hearts and brings spiritual brokenness into our lives and ultimately death. He has to deal with this directly. And let me give just an an illustration here. You know, think about it this way. You know, if if you happen to struggle at work, it can bring brokenness for yourself and and in the workplace. And if that that struggle, if that brokenness is not dealt with, um, it could lead to 
a termination, a kind of death. But if you have someone who vouches for you, who's willing to eat your mistakes by working overtime on your behalf, willing to struggle with you, tie their reputation and their career with yours, put their own job on the line, then, then what you've got is someone who loves you more than they love themselves. And this will change you forever. And friends, this is what Jesus does for us in the cosmic picture of life. He makes the ultimate commitment to us and he pays the ultimate sacrifice and ties his life to our sins, past, present, and future. And that resurrection life that will one day be perfectly ours, we, we get a taste of that now by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, whenever we truly and sincere are, sincerely are fellowshipping with the gospel, you can experience his power in your heart. And he, re, he reorders our hearts. He, he frees our hearts. That is the freedom of our calling. And so, for example, in the book of Hebrews, it says that through Jesus' pain, he brought many sons and daughters to glory. And what this means for us is as painful as a particular season can be in our life, in our workplace, we can trust that we have a loving and wise Father who first brings tremendous comfort to us with himself. Not with anything else, but, but with himself. And in that spiritual presence, in that spiritual communion and fellowship, he gives us strength to endure this particular struggle. The death and resurrection of Christ begins to untangle the things that we thought we would get or have. He begins to untangle that pain with himself and heal us with his spirit and the hope of his redemptive wisdom and will. Second, though there doesn't ever seem to be a day without thorns in our work or life, Jesus literally wore a crown of thorns. <laughs> you know that? He literally wore a crown of thorns on his way to the cross. Why? To symbolize that he is enduring the ultimate thorns of life. And as he was doing that, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And united to Christ through faith, we have that same spirit to help us navigate the thorns in our lives. And maybe, you know, you can put that crown of thorns on your head and with humility and wisdom and courage, live with supernatural grace to those around us. Lastly, though, it seems like we'll never have enough rest. We can rest in the fact that Jesus worked himself to the bone and he never let anything slip. Every anxiety you have, he has covered. Because he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, I 
have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus worked. He protected. He served and loved until it literally killed him. Until he said on the cross, it is finished. Friends, he did all this so that we can rest in the fact that our pains, our thorns, and our exhaustion is not forever. But it's an interim testing period until we reach our eternal home where there will be no more pain, no more thorns, no more exhaustion. Just rest. Perfect rest. Perfect peace, perfect love, and complete fulfillment. The presence of God, our true home. Friends, this is the amazing twist of the gospel, that Jesus would leave the perfect and balanced calling of heaven and enter into the chaos of sin and the cross to save us and give us what we're ultimately looking for, ultimate security, ultimate recognition, ultimate affection and acceptance and grace and rest. And this grace reorders our hearts so that we no longer work from a place of fear or desperation. We no longer work from a place of constant anger or discouragement or an expectation to find our ultimate fulfillment in this promotion or in that job or in this team or in this interview. Because frankly, it's not up to the task. But Christ is and he frees us to work and live from a place of tremendous gratitude. He frees us to work and live from a place of tremendous security, tremendous faith and power and integrity and grace and joy and peace in our lives from what he has eternally and graciously given to us. Man, the gospel is the only thing that can powerfully and spiritually free you and untangle the rulers that seek to rule over your heart. And when Christ does this, friends, when he is your king, he always finds a way to speak into your heart and to free you. You know, Risen, at the end of our lives, we're all going to meet Jesus one day. And you got to say, I did what you asked me to do. I stewarded my life and gifts as best as I could. I did everything I could. It wasn't perfect, but I, I gave it my all. I did everything I could to fulfill your calling upon my life, Christ. Thank you for your grace. And he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, we come to you out of a chaotic world, out of a chaotic week, out of a tension that doesn't ever seem to end, no matter how much we work, no matter how much we gain. And the power of the, this world's culture seems so 
unavoidable, inescapable. And we can know it in our heads that, that you have given us ultimate security, that you are the ones providing for us, that you are wise, and that you are taking care of us. But it's so hard. It's so hard not to allow any one of these petitions in the Lord's Prayer to rule over our hearts. And so, Father, what we need is a gospel encounter. What we need is the resurrected Christ to enter into our hearts with the Word of God and to slice away the spiritual forces and powers that entangles our hearts and our minds. So, Father, I pray that you would always be able to do this for us at Risen. Every week we meet in our community groups, in our relationships, that we would understand the comprehensive calling that you have placed on our lives and know that only you can free us, can rule us and lead us faithfully, peacefully, joyfully, wisely. So Father, would you do what we cannot do, what no man has ever done, but only what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Enter into our hearts. Would you rule over us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.